Before we start the show, if you want more stock talking, check out my newsletter at tinyletter.com slash bbrostoff or visit postcoronastocks.com. You can find me on Twitter at at BMB21. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Stock Talking, an exploration of financial markets in the context of the post-corona world. COVID-19 has changed the way we value equity, debt, and business as a whole. My goal is to find great companies who can thrive in the new normal. I can't wait to get started. All right, welcome to another episode of Stock Talking. Actually, the first one of 2021. Been on a little hiatus, but we're back now, and no better time than now. Uh, SPX and the NASDAQ both at all-time highs. Uh, it seems like everything's surging. Couldn't have really picked a better time to do this podcast. But as always, first off, the impervious. Welcome to the show. So good to be back in the saddle again. New year, new you. Ben, do you have any uh, 2021 resolutions you'd like to share for the audience? Oh, dad, too many to list. I, I guess the investing one I would throw out is, I think I just want to be a more consistent investor and instead of trying to cherry pick uh, market timing. I think I'm just going to put in money every week um, on positions I have a lot of conviction in. I, I just want to keep investing and look at the business fundamentals, not the price. I'm not going to be afraid of calls that were in a bubble. Uh, I'm just going to look for quality businesses and, and keep investing on a consistent cadence. So I suppose that's my number one 2021 goal. What about you? Well, uh, investing wise, let's let's settle with a, a positive PL for the year. Um, an optimistic one, uh, make enough to retire in 2021. That might be a little lofty, but you know, you gotta set some goals to to motivate yourself. But uh, realistically and seriously, one of the things I'd like to do in 2021 is write more, get some more content out in the world and uh, look for some uh, fresh impervious blogs and whatever else on a number of topics, including calisthenics, body weight training, uh, an area I'd love to share some uh, expertise in and help you get in the best shape you can in this pandemic. That's awesome. I, I would totally read that. Uh, shout out to you, to our listeners. You, you taught me how to do my first muscle ups. That was, that was a pretty big one. Um, on the investing front, like I would say going into this year, you have Green PL always is, is a good one. I feel like what I've seen a lot of people, especially new investors and you know, some friends and family who have started talking to me about this a lot recently, everyone's trying to comp 21 to 20. And I mean, every, you got to realize 20 was an absolutely historic year for the market. It, it's going to be very difficult, at least for me. Like I think it was my best year in the market ever. Um, it's going to be very difficult to do better than that. So I always say my hurdle rate is 10%. I'd be very happy to live with 10% returns. Um, 2020, obviously, on many individual names, delivered five to seven x plus whatever uh, that hurdle rate. But uh, over time, just looking for that 10%. Um, some years it's way higher, some years it's way lower. So I think you just got to go multi-year time horizon and not to get too greedy. And you know, it, to your point, 2020 was definitely uh, a bit of an outlier, I guess you could say, um, especially following years of of a bull market. Um, but what would really tickle my fancy, I think, is if we did find ourselves perhaps closing down on the year, having my portfolio then close green. And considering the environment we're in, I think uh, some of these old dogs might have to learn some new tricks when it comes to you know how to trade the year ahead. And I think there is definitely a lot to indicate that a lot that has worked in the past 
um, while definitely still working now, you know, might not be as effective, you know, looking down the line further into 2021. Yeah, I mean, the first 20 days perhaps wouldn't lead you to believe that, but maybe this is a good, as any segue to get into what's happened since last time we talked. So I think it was maybe the second week of December last time we did a podcast. Since then, I think the market has gone absolutely gangbusters. Um, it's kind of been a crazy start to the year. So what have you been seeing recently? Well, let's start today and, and move our way backwards. Um, that doesn't really make any sense, but for the sake of, of this narrative here, I'll make it work. Uh, but we closed today, as you mentioned, on top with uh, new all-time highs in uh, S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. Um, today being the 20th of January in the inauguration of Joe Biden, um, any of these election-related events sort of stand out as mostly a point of uncertainty for the markets, at least in the sense that the outcome isn't necessarily known. You know, granted, inauguration, the outcome is known, but um, there's definitely been uh, some seeds sown in the media about the potential for uh, further rioting, um, a la the Capitol event last week, uh, or general civil unrest. So that's something that to, to some degree is baked into the psychology of traders, definitely not something you can really price in. But when you see those events pass and that uncertainty is gone, volatility usually melts away. And in today's instance, we saw a uh, pretty frothy melt up in something that I think uh, will probably be giving people mixed signals. So uh, the S&P 500 um, just about hit the 3850 handle today, which when you consider how far we are from the March lows is a, a pretty a substantial move. And also considering that, you know, we haven't even seen more than a one or 2% pullback basically since the election. Um, this is just sort of a continued uptrend. Uh, and pretty much every single indicator, uh, as well as, you know, sentiment, uh, different measures of sentiment um, are showing that we are sort of peak, uh, peak bullishness, peak euphoria in how the market is is trading so um it does seem like we are about to kick off a big move higher and there's some strong momentum out there in the markets today uh but if we back up to the last time we talked we talked just before uh the holidays a couple of short weeks for trading lower volume uh 2021 did start off with a bit of a hiccup there starting with some selling on the first trading day of the year but hasn't really looked back except for last friday uh, where we saw a bit of selling. And part of that was due to the fact that there was a significant amount of uh, open call options, um, creating a, a high amount of dealer gamma. Uh, basically, the people that sell the options uh, end up having to buy a lot of the underlying stock to hedge the positions that they sold. So when you come up to an op, uh, options expiration date or OPEX like last Friday, uh, and a lot of those uh, contracts that had been open um, are expiring. They either get sold or rolled forward. So generally, if they're sold and not rolled forward, then the underlying that the market maker, whoever sold that call is holding, gets sold. So with billions and billions and billions of dollars uh, of stock being held in this, this particular manner, and really these, these gamma squeezes, um, which is a term to describe when um, option purchases, particularly call options, are what's driving price higher, not so much uh, 
purchases of the underlying equity, but a significant amount of calls being bought. Um, when we see that this particular condition, it definitely um, generally happens around sort of a lower uh, volume environment, which you know, relative to what we're seeing maybe six months ago, uh, or sort of in the April through June timeframes, definitely lower volume can definitely have a significant impact on the market. And with uh, the number of retail investors flooding into the market, and this is nothing new, but I think the sheer power of smaller investors, the Robinhood and Wall Street bets crowd um, is definitely manifesting itself through a lot of these very, very short expiration call option purchases. Um, so even though significant amount of that gamma exposure came off and we saw a all time high uh, gamut exposure print of over $20 billion, um, a lot of that came off and here we are with another $14 billion of gamut exposure with a significant amount of that um, actually expiring on Friday. So there is a good chance that we are just going to continue to be in the cycle of you know, Monday through Wednesday or Thursday rally and then a bit of a return to the mean to, towards the end of the week um, where those options are closed and uh, all the underlying is sold. So where, where we are here does sort of feel like in a lot of ways a bit of a watershed moment um, so aside from the price action, which is sort of undeniably bullish, except for maybe the small caps, which did not print uh, an all-time high today, but we're definitely the runaway champion amongst the indexes uh, in late 2020. Um, we're, we're at a bit of a point here where the indices are, are quite a bit extended. Like I mentioned, we haven't seen a pullback or anything, um, but using one of my, my favorite indicators, the, the Bollinger Bands, which basically are a measure of you know what is uh, sort of a high or low price relative to you know where the price has been trading and what the volume is. Um, both uh, the SPY, which is the S&P 500 ETF, uh, and the QQQ, the Nasdaq ETF, close several dollars outside of that Bollinger band. And generally, when this happens, there's usually a hard mean reversion there. Um, basically what that says is price is, is too high or outside of the range of, of what price is expected to be. And just some other instances where we've seen uh, price this far outside of Bollinger Band. One example that stands out would be September 2nd. Uh, and as we've talked about a number of times on the show, that's when um, the summer gamma squeeze uh, driven mostly by SoftBank, uh, writing tech, um, really sort of came undone. In September 3rd, uh, we saw a pretty significant, almost 4% down day, and that downward trend continued uh, for several weeks there before the market was able to gain footing. So rather than piling in on this price action today, uh, I think there's definitely a, a lot of caution that should be used here. Um, and I guess one thing that stands out to me, it is good to see that the, the tech names that have really been uh, sort of just not doing too much floundering around since um, that September 3rd sell-off like Facebook, Apple, Google, Netflix uh, really had themselves a day today. But a lot of the other names, especially on my watch list, a lot of the growth uh, and cloud names um, really didn't have the type of day one would sort of expect um, with this much buying. There just really wasn't that much breadth to this rally. Uh, and we've seen the internals, just the, the volume, advancers, decliners, tick, um, all be sort of relative flat to down. So there's definitely some selling going on under the hood. 
Um, but we have the opposing force of just insane over the top call buying that you know it's worked so far, and until it doesn't work, it's going to keep uh, being something that drives um, price higher. And one more thing to point out: um, been watching the dollar very closely here, and the dollar short is basically uh, pretty much the consensus most crowded trade in the markets right now. And with the um, printing and the fiscal and monetary, monetary policy out there, it's it's pretty easy to understand the the fundamental case there. Uh, even though the euro dollar system is, is far more complicated than, than most people would have you believe. Um, but we have seen a uh, relative bottom put in by the dollar um, hitting that low on the 6th of January um, below the 89 handle, actually 89.22. Uh, um, and since about you know the last couple of weeks, we've been holding above 90 cents. So the level for me is 90.43. That's been a pretty significant resistance. And we closed just above that today on the DXY. Uh, until that level goes down, this the potential for a dollar squeeze is still on the table and still there. Um, if the dollar were to get above 91, or DXY, I should say, above 91 and hold it there, uh, there is a high likelihood that it'll find itself at 92 or 94 pretty quickly as all those short positions uh, get squeezed out and unwound. So I don't think that the risk of a dollar squeeze can sort of be understated since um, basically all of the dollar denominated assets, which would be stocks, bonds, anything that is bought with dollars, as well as commodities, basically depend on a weakening dollar uh, for their price to go up, uh, especially with the underlying fundamentals not really, in most cases, uh, providing anything to substantiate them. So there's risk out there, but at the same time, you know, the bears have been dead and buried for a long time. Uh, we may be reaching that capitulation point, um, but to call it top has been definitely a fool's errand uh, in recent days. But if there was a time to call at least a relative top here in this rally, I think it would be coming up soon. But uh, with VIX still sort of uh, not taking off or breaking out um, to any appreciable level, um, there really isn't anything to indicate that we're, we're headed down anytime soon, other than the fact that we've just headed up real fast. Yeah, all that makes sense. I mean, I, I think it's hard not to look at how things have run up and say it's a little toppy. I mean, as usual, I do want to provide the kind of fundamental investor perspective, as I always do on the show, which I think is a little bit more bullish. So I'll start with uh, something I sent you that we kind of had a nice email back and forth on. So there's a newsletter I follow called The Transcript, which I, I highly recommend everybody subscribe to. It basically pulls out the best earnings calls um, from various companies and then puts together um, some of the, the really good quotes from C-Level Suite um, managers from uh, the, you know, these top companies. So the theme of the last one really got into a number of things, you know, financials, consumer spending, supply chains. Um, I just want to run through some of this stuff really quick. Um, on the financial side, you know, you, you have a ton of stuff from uh, some of the big bank players and uh, as well as the credit card companies. But the, the gist of it is kind of that charge off ratios um, are, are close to all time lows and, and way lower than 2019. So I think one thing everybody got wrong in 2020 about COVID was it was actually that consumer credit improved significantly rather than getting worse. So delinquency ratios, charge offs all came in lower than expected. The net result of this is banks are governed by this regulation called CECL, where basically they have to forecast their losses and those come right off earnings. Um, when those estimates are worse than expected, um, they're allowed to lower their uh, lower those estimates in terms of losses, and it, get, it looks like an add back on earnings. So we've seen a ton of banks come out and say, 
hey, we're gonna you're gonna see uh, you know a positive increase in earnings reported this quarter because we were pretty draconian on, on Cecil. Um, so that's been really good. That's been uh, you know that's kind of been a theme of uh, the fourth quarter and third quarter for a ton of banks. Wells Fargo and Bank of America both had really good prints this week. We talked about this at the end of the last show about a month ago, but the Fed is now letting the banks do buyback programs. Uh, most of the major banks did announce significant buyback programs this week. Again, like if, if managers are um, allowing the company to buy back stock, that's usually a fairly bullish signal. Um, on the supply chain side, I think it's worth pointing out too, um, we're seeing commodity prices spike. You can attribute that to either speculation um, or to the fact that there's a lot more demand that supply or somewhere in between. I think the answer is probably in between. But all that said, like, you know, you're looking at uh, the materials ETF. I think that's cl- trading close to an all-time high. Copper prices are at a multi-year high. So it'd be, it'd be very difficult to kind of dismiss this as just uh, speculation. Uh, you know, I think you look at the stock price action and cyclicals and also commodities, um, and the market does seem to be forecasting that we're in kind of this secular bull market. Um, again, e- easy to dismiss, but also try trying not to ignore uh, the signals that are being given off. Uh, the last thing I point out too, that it's kind of moving on from the, the transcript email, but something I've been reviewing, uh, companies have been kind of reporting at either conferences, uh, banks often hold like a bunch of conferences where technology companies will, will talk about what they're doing, um, or in some cases directly reporting. So I, I think that's been pretty positive too. I mean, two holdings of, of mine I would highlight are uh, CrowdStrike and Netflix. So on, on CrowdStrike, they didn't report earnings, but they were at kind of uh, back-to-back conferences in the middle of January. Um, they've had a really positive story on margins improving on the back of higher IT spends. Obviously, cybersecurity is a bigger thing in the wake of uh, solar winds. But I mean, this is a company that's posting really good free cash flow margins, uh, really good top line and bottom line growth. So super impressed with CrowdStrike. And I think it's just, it, it's evidence that a lot of the growth in SaaS uh, actually is really high quality. It's not just all kind of top line, um, you know, paying to, to grow. Netflix was the other one I was going to say that shocked me. Uh, Netflix reporting greater free cash flow and profitability, even saying they might consider buying back stock. And I think it's easy to forget history, but like if you think about the story on Netflix uh, going back to you know, 2010 or 15, this was a really highly shorted stock. And the story was that they were spending uh, so much on buying these uh, TV shows that they would never be able to become profitable. That's totally flipped. I mean, everyone's trying to emulate what they're doing. Um, but props to Reed Hastings, props to the entire management team there. Uh, stock was up, whatever, about 13% today. Uh, amazing. They think they their own stock may be undervalued um, after what was called the most overvalued stock in the market for quite a long period of time. So this is all to say, like, I actually think there are a ton of positive signals, uh, both from what we're hearing managers say, uh, the corporate activity we're seeing, the um, you know the financials, the cash flow statement. Um, so ultimately, like as a fundamental investor, I mean, I, I think it's hard to fade this market. Um, the business fundamentals actually look like they're really good and they're improving. I think there was a reason all the FANG stocks were up significantly today. It's because people are saying, wow, like, you know, you look at an Apple and Amazon, Facebook, Google, like we're kind of entering out of this COVID period. They did really well during COVID. You know, you think about ad spend coming back, consumers being a bit more robust with a higher savings rate, probably unemployment going to continue to tick down. We might get to a five handle this year from six. Um, overall, feeling pretty good about the economy. So I know we, we kind of disagree there, but um, this is why the market trades ahead of the economy. Maybe the market already forecasted this and six months from now, I'm going to look like an idiot uh, when things have taken a turn for the worse. But if you're purely looking at business fundamentals, I'm feeling pretty good right now.
Which, which is funny because a lot of people have been uh, lamenting the fact that fundamentals haven't mattered for a long time in the market, at least when it comes to unprofitable companies. But yeah, real quick, Netflix finally, uh, or they announced it looks like they may soon be cash flow positive. So uh, I didn't realize that it had taken this long for uh, them to get to that point, but good, good for Netflix. But uh, one more thing, um, if you guys didn't know and something you might want to know about Ben, he loves himself some CEO slide decks. So if you can say a couple of nice things and you know have some just happy thoughts and warm apple pie put into a slide deck, he's going to eat that up. But we've talked in the past about the whole reopening narrative and all the pent up demand coming into 2021, uh, which is almost certainly priced in at this point. Um, and we've also been able to climb a nice wall of worry with the election and everything else. Um, that helps to drive a bull market. But as we enter sort of the next phase of whatever this is, pandemic or, I don't know, uh, the, just 2021, um, there's a number of sort of crippling parts of this economy that we need to sort of uh, begin to look at. And you had mentioned unemployment. One thing that's really stood out in the last couple uh, reports on both unemployment claims um, and things like the ADP job data and on-farm payrolls is that we're seeing an uptick in unemployment claims uh, and some pretty distressing uh, decreases in, um, you know, the, the or rather increases um, in, in the number of unemployed over the last few months. So uh, with three consecutive um, unemployment numbers um, with over a million people filing in the most recent claim last week or recent reported period last week, we definitely have an uptrend here. A lot of that driven potentially by the lockdowns and everything else that's continuing to go on. Um, but the narrative of reopening and moving forward in, in the right direction there is definitely starting to crumble and moving in the wrong direction. So um, with the pent up demand, we run into this situation where we have uh, not really much productivity to show for all the capital that has entered the market in the sense that uh, supply chains are have still uh, been disrupted from all of the COVID shutdowns and any number of things. So uh, being able to have the, the supply to meet that demand, assuming that demand is there in basically all sectors, uh, will become a challenge. We're already starting to see this in the semiconductor space. Uh, news coming out last week that semiconductor shortages have uh, led to production shutdowns at a number of different auto manufacturers, including Toyota. Um, so there's definitely a ripple effect there, especially when it comes to um, components like semiconductors and, and very sort of specialized devices like that that are used by a number of OEMs. Uh, and when that one part isn't available, they can't build cars, but any of the other suppliers of components um, are not able to really sell more components if those cars aren't getting built. Um, so there's definitely a major bottleneck created when even just one supplier for some of these more complex devices like a car or a cell phone isn't able to provide a part. So we'll definitely have to see if there is a, a capability to get production up to meet demand. And this is a problem in a number of different sectors, um, especially with energy and oil. Uh, once we start seeing travel sort of get back to similar levels if they ever do, um, our capability to get production back online with um, a, a number of uh, different um, petroleum companies having gone out of business, BKed, uh, and a significant amount of production shut down, uh, it'll be very difficult to get that production online. So we're going to see gas prices really start pumping. And you've already seen that in uh, WTI and crude prices recently. Um, 
but we also just need to consider that with the the election over everything out of the way here you know there aren't really any more events i feel like to change the perception on what's going on or add any optimism now it's sort of do or die time like we got to start seeing something happen here will this actually affect you know the price when it comes to how the market is traded i don't know but I think there is definitely a lot of great opportunities, places to be bullish, and those aren't necessarily the stocks that have run up a lot, but look at materials, look at miners, definitely look at gold and other commodities. You mentioned copper in the year ahead. Um, growth is, has grown quite a bit, at least in terms of their, their price here, but um, there's still plenty of room to grow for the everyday staples to get more and more expensive. We've got beans in the teens now, so you know whatever it is that's traded on uh, commodity markets, it's the price is going up so that's the place i would be looking to be bullish here uh instead of buying up more peloton or uh whatever else trying to you know get this this GameStop squeeze going even higher um if i was actually looking to make a long-term investment here i mean banks look like a great play as well they've been rallying of late and i think there's um some bullishness to be found there but you know not not expecting the same returns as you would from from tesla um but the, the narrative is is subject to change, um, not around necessarily optimism around reopening, but the fact that are we reopened? Is this is this the reopening? Are we there yet? Is this is this what was promised? So we'll get more stimulus. That'll help. But you know there there's going to need to actually be some economic recovery for a lot of um, these these predictions to, to come to fruition. But speaking of which, shall we uh, make some predictions for the year ahead? Yes, uh, I know you have a number of, of questions you want to go over. So I'm, I'm excited to predict. I will say, just to add to what you're saying, I, I want to kind of take a victory lap. I was banging the drum on banks and energy uh, pretty much since April. And it would have been a pretty good trade. I still think it's a great trade uh, had you bought then. I mean, I, I think energy specifically I want to call out because you know, investors are so allergic to it. Um, obviously, the Exxons, Exxons and Chevrons in the world have not had a great uh, last three to five years. But you look at what has happened on the on the cash flow statement, on the balance sheet, like we're pretty much heading towards a place where all of them slash CapEx in order to maintain the dividend. Um, you know, there, there were major questions about whether they could survive, so they, they stopped drilling. Um, so basically, as you said, with the supply chain uh, shortages, you know, oil is going to be short in supply. Uh, everyone is scared to death of oversupply because that has been the story of energy for the last couple of years. Um, even if we don't see complete reopening, even if it's slower than expected, it's going to be way higher than last year. Um, and I think we're going to see the price of oil probably go up. I mean, we're in the 50s, so we're still pretty low relative to where it was. So again, CapEx is low, prices are high, you're going to see margins go up. I think you know when these companies start reporting earnings, it's going to really surprise the upside. And I think the stock should react. But again, risky trade, uh, obviously very sensitive to the entire economic recovery. But I think there's a ton of risk reward um, on the upside to be had in banks. And also financials, obviously, kind of a, a proxy for the entire economy. But now that there's no more overhang of can't do buybacks, can't increase the dividends, uh, rates are going to stay low. And if, if rates do go up, banks actually should benefit from that. So I think uh, on, on both uh, energies and financials, I just... I love that trade. Uh, maybe that's my trade of 2021. But let's get into our predictions. I can, I can review some of the things I'm thinking about. Absolutely, absolutely. So this time we'll be doing a little something different for the show. Uh, since we are in a fresh year here, we'd like to 
make make a few predictions here, or at least uh, try and decide, you know, where we think things will end up when we fast forward another 300, however many odd days ahead. So, got a couple of topics, but before we begin, uh, one thing I'd like to start with, um, Ben, what was your top trade of 2020, and what was your worst trade of 2020? Oh, wow. Let's... Uh... Let's start off with the worst trade first, because I got I got two, so I got to get the bad ones out of the way. Um, during the entire e-commerce boom, um, I bought into the big commerce IPO and kind of averaged up. I do own some at 140. Um, that it's growing nowhere near as fast as Shopify or Mercado Libre. I do want to say to listeners, I own both of those, so they have compensated for my losses in big commerce, but. The, the moral of the story there was don't buy the hype train and don't buy worst in breed. You want to buy best in breed. Big commerce is not growing nearly as fast as Shopify and Mercado Libre. It's a much smaller company and not growing as fast. So you never want to own the number three or four player, especially one that's not even close to the size that the competitors have. Um, so big commerce was a big loss for me. Um, the other one, listeners of the show, if you've made it this far, you've probably heard us pitch shorting FXI. At the time, we thought China's growth numbers uh, were a little bit inflated. They probably are, but th that does not matter in a rising bull market. So if you had shorted anything, you probably would have got burns, but buying puts on FXI was not the best call. Uh, but that does bring me to my best trade or trades. And I think I'm just going to go ahead and say it was FANG. Uh, I, on this podcast, kept recommending Facebook, Apple, and Amazon specifically. Um, for me, I was like, you can't go wrong with quality Apple specifically. I mean, it's amazing to think that the thing traded down to a forward teens multiple on earnings. Um, yeah, I, I went ahead and swooped in. That was the best. I mean, I think I'm up 80% plus, uh, on 2020 and it's had a good 21 so far, but Apple for years now has been, I think the best run company in the entire world. Uh, Tim cook is just a stellar allocator of capital. Um, Everything they do to me turns to gold. I mean, I'm sure they've had a couple swings and misses on products, but the services division, I mean, what they have with iPhone, what they've had with wearables and AirPods and the watch, it, it's just such an incredible growth company. They've grown the dividend for years on end. Um, I love the way it's run. So I'm going to go uh, Fang, but specifically Apple. I think Apple was my best trade of the year. Let's hear it for you. Buy Apple. Very, very provocative. I, I, I like that take. I hadn't thought of that yet. So, uh, by the, by the way, completely outperformed the market. Like if you comp Apple's 2020 to SPY, I think Apple's at 80% plus and the market was whatever 20% on the year. So I just don't think people necessarily give credit that this 4x the market return, even though it's the largest market cap stock in the entire stock market. So it's... Um, some some valuable financial advice, which by by the way, this is not financial advice for entertainment purposes only, but buy buy yourself some Apple. And I think you might have yourself another broken clock is right twice a day moment here with Big C, like you had with uh, the banks. And I, I I made you uh, bring that up on air because I've I've thoroughly enjoyed talking trash about you buying the top there as you are wont to do. But I think there is a great opportunity here for. Uh, big C in that uh, it looks to have bottomed right around uh, the 60 handle, but it is actually one of the most shorted stocks, at least by percentage of short float uh, or percentage of float that is currently short, and that is at 75%. Um, so considering the short squeezes we've seen on names like Bed Bath & Beyond, GameStop, 
Uh, I feel like there is a, a tremendous opportunity here uh, with Big C once it starts a move up in, I think above $70, uh, this, this one could take off. And talking about shorting China stocks, we had uh, tried to, to find a short trade on GSX, a, a Chinese uh, uh, edutech company um, that is quite clearly fraudulent. Um, there's been a number of short seller re reports, but basically squeezed and quadrupled after that point. So now the power of a short squeeze is, is one of the strongest in the market. So if we see Big C start going, I think that is definitely on my watch list and one of the top trades that I'd be looking for. Um, but as far as my best trades of the year go, um, the cop-out answer would be the best and the worst trades were spy puts in that um, by far the biggest days that I had in the last trading year or the last year of trading uh, were on those significant down days when you get a big move in price several percent in one day uh, and you're able to capture that even with just a couple of puts. Um, that's a pretty big payoff in a short period of time. You know, everyone's used to the, the big up moves by, you know, some of the FANG names earlier this summer or Tesla at any number of points. But uh, being able to, to cash in on a selling day and not end up having your portfolio bleed uh, is definitely a great feeling. But at the same time, uh, thinking you found a top and trying to short it and then getting blown up uh, is a surefire way to make you feel like a scrub. So it is definitely not everyone's trade. And it is a bit alarming how, how many people are wholly opposed to even just hedging their portfolio. Uh, and I think right now we're in one of those times that's completely risk on. Um, but when you do play it right and are able to capitalize on upside and downside, then I think you've found yourself a, a sound trading technique in equality edge. Um, but really the best trade of this year for me, um, and not because I really did anything special other than blindly follow uh, an option flow for 50 puts on luck and coffee the day before um, they were announced to be under investigation by the SEC uh, and dropped um, basically 75% overnight. Um, that was the single biggest return on any, any option play there. Uh, a bit of blind luck, but at the same time, if there is a, a thesis there, and that's part of the joy of options, being able to sort of have exposure and capture significant moves without significant capital, um, that stood out definitely as uh, one of the best trades, but not exactly a uh, situation that's very easy to predict or replicate. So you, know, you got to appreciate those as being special and unique when, when they happen. And that, that was a nice one, one that sort of stands out in my heart. It's a great trade. I did want to throw out, we talked about this before the show, but I have a trade that on a percentage basis was my best trade, but I'm still kicking myself for not having enough conviction. Uh, the story actually starts, I think, right around when we started talking about the market, which was you know late February, early March. We were talking about uh, kind of the the carnage that was happening in any business that relied on people being in a physical location, uh, crowded physical location, to be sure. So we started looking at the casinos, specifically Penn and MGM, and we we tried unsuccessfully to buy puts a couple times. Um, I started to do more research onto this, and I remember talking to you, and a wake-up moment for me was, hey, I'm looking on Open Insider, which is the website I use to, to track you know, all the insider purchases. Um, and at the time, execs from MGM and from Penn were buying the stock like crazy, and it really stood out to me. Um, started looking more at the balance sheet, some of their lease agreements. Um, surprisingly, casinos don't own all their buildings. Looking at online gambling, and it became very evident uh, that... They there was a high probability they were going to survive. 
Um, the balance sheets weren't nearly as bad as I expected. I, also at the time, like there were companies raising debt. Um, I think a big wake up moment for me too, that this wasn't going to be as bad as expected is the cruise lines were able to raise debt uh, kind of at low teens rate. So I was like, the capital markets are still open. This is a substantial difference from 08. Uh, best trade of the year on a percentage basis. I bought a little bit of pan at 10 bucks. My big mistake was not averaging up. So I did have a 10 bagger in 2020. Uh, but unfortunately, there wasn't a significant amount of capital behind it. Uh, to me, I think it's proof that like, if you have a little bit of conviction, you maybe want to look at sizing your positions uh, appropriately. Because a lot of conviction, I think, is binary. Like, if you had asked me point blank, I would have been like, I think Penn and MGM. And MGM was another really good trade. Um, I owned a lot in the teens. And when um, IC went and bought them, I, I, went bought, I bought even more. But again, like the liquidity situation looked okay. And I, I thought it was pretty likely they were going to muddle through. So wish I had more conviction there. Uh, but I also pat myself on the back for changing my opinion. Uh, when I researched and kind of put the, the light under it, um, I was like, well, insiders are buying. Balance sheet looks good. Uh, maybe maybe a good risk reward here. So uh, good and that the it was a 10-bagger and bad and that it was not that much money. Well, I guess if we're going to be hyping up some of our calls, I guess the one I'll give myself credit for was calling out a buy on CrowdStrike. It's either July or August at 97. It's well since doubled since then. Uh, a number of great trades, and that's been by far the, the best uh, ticker in terms of ROI, um, both on stock position, but mostly call options trading that one. So uh, one one that you know I'm still we're both still very bullish on. Um, and has definitely ha had some strong returns with a strong growth story moving forward. So I think that's that's one to watch. Yeah, I mean, you also put uh, Cloudflare on my radar too. So I, I tip my hat to you a lot for for you guys. Kind of were the force behind. Well, look at the charts you know, from a technical perspective. Uh, these this is definitely a good supply demand imbalance. Uh, CrowdStrike and Cloudflare, I think, even in 2021, they just remain incredible businesses. And I, I'm going to be following both those stories. But credit to you for putting them on my radar. Cloudflare at 30, almost tripled since then. So thank you for reminding me that I gave you that, that great tip there that I completely forgot about and wasn't giving myself credit for. So moving on here, the, the question on everyone's mind, will the S&P 500 close 2021 higher or lower than we right. I'm going to start because I know you're, you're probably going to disagree with my answer. I, as always, am the more bullish person on this podcast. I'm going higher. So let's start with like, what is SPY? I say this every podcast, I'll say it again. As of now, 50% of the index is made up of seven stocks. That is, of course, FANG and also Tesla. So not don't feel great about Tesla, but also I think it's there aren't many sellers on Tesla. It's a really hard stock to fade. Um, as long as they keep executing, it's pretty difficult to see the thing having a major drawdown on valuation concerns. Of course, you know, a macro event could change all of that, but... No one has called the top on Tesla yet. I'm not about to call it. Um, all of Fang, I just think the growth story is so good. The balance sheet is so good. There's, there's opportunities for M&A. They could buy back stock. Um, they could reinvest in the business. So I'm not about to fade Fang either. And then let's look at the rest of the stocks. I mean, I, I talked about uh, Bank Synergy at the top of the show. I think the non-tech companies, the comp is going to be for a year that was terrible. So you are going to see companies beating earnings by hundreds of percent, going negative free cash flow to massively positive free cash flow, reintroducing the dividend, reinvesting in the business, uh, reopening um, stock repurchase programs. So again, we're, we're going to see earnings that are amazingly positive. And has this been priced in? 
I don't know, but again, I just think it's really tough to fade a year where the macro is going to look really, really good. So overall, hyper bullish on 2021, I'm going higher. So to, to play devil's advocate here, and, and the, the, the reasoning is, is pretty simple, right? So despite the sell-off in March, we still closed the year up uh, pretty significantly. So going back to uh, 2019, uh, the S&P 500 returned 31.5%, 2020 returned 18.5%, we're already up 2.5% this year. So pretty simply, the, the average annual return of the S&P 500 is basically 8 to 10%. So after having just really run up quite a bit in the last couple of years, it just makes sense that a reversion to the mean uh, is sort of a, a logical conclusion to sort of, you know, what looks to me, and I know you'll disagree, but sort of the late stages of this bull rally. And a lot of people point to March, February and March as being a recession, but it really wasn't. In a recession, you see a lot of market participants sort of exit the market uh, rather than just buy back in hand and fist um, at a low like that. So there wasn't really any any damage done to the, the confidence of the buyers in the market out there. So in a lot of ways, I think you can consider this to still be the same bull market that we've been in since uh, basically the global financial crisis. Um, so in order for this to keep going, um, there's several things that need to happen. And I know you're bullish about the economy and everything else, but uh, it's pretty undeniable that a lot of what's driving equity prices has been the fiscal and monetary policy. And so where we're at could be considered a crack up boom. And this is a term that comes from the Austrian economics. And basically what a crack up boom is, is a crash of the credit and monetary system due to continual credit expansion and price increases that cannot be sustained long term. So in the face of excessive credit expansion, consumers inflation expectations accelerate to the point that money becomes worthless and the economic system crashes. So that pretty much describes where we're at here in terms of the Fed balance sheet is continuing to expand. Um, there is no shortage of credit available out there um, and rates are continuing to be extremely low. And what are we getting in return for all of that credit? Very, very little productivity. So there's basically been with the Fed put out there a complete reluctance to let the market drop. And at this point, um, with this cycle really coming to an end and being pretty extended after 10 years uh, and a, a complete reluctance to let there be sort of a correction, shake things out, maybe a few tears, but um, making us all stronger and no worse for the wear, we get ourselves in a situation where credit is really the only thing holding everything up. And the only way to get out of that massive debt position is to continue uh, just inflating that debt away. Um, and what that ultimately does is devalue the dollar, thus the very crowded dollar short trade or you know, whatever the currency is. So there's basically two sort of end games to the situation we're at, you know, either some type of correction, we get back on our feet, stop you know, just printing money, get back to uh, being able to pay for things ourselves, try and shrink deficits, or we do none of that and we continue to just devalue the dollar until that it is no longer one, the uh, reserve currency, and then two, um, there's just basically no confidence in it whatsoever. And it seems like that is probably the direction we're headed with the number of digital currencies out there. So I think the story for 2021, um, it may take a few more years, but um, will definitely be the death of the dollar and the introduction of some type of uh, digital dollar, um, blockchain-based Fed coin something 
Um, but the dollar needs to be killed first. The euro dollar and international dollar system um, is going to be a casualty of that. And that's probably where we need to go in order for um, this, all of the money printing in MMT to really have the effect that is intended in terms of increasing employment uh, and also increasing just consumer spending power, but you know, in, in turn reducing it with the, the value of the dollar. So that said, you know, the, the run up and also the number of things that would have to fall into place for it to continue, I do see a, a high likelihood that we do um, end 2021 a little lower. And in a similar vein, um, crypto is basically everyone's favorite meme these days. Um, Bitcoin after hitting a high uh, above 40,000 has uh, shown a bit of weakness here, sort of um, just treading water around the 35,000 handle with uh, Ethereum making new all-time highs. Uh, but it does look like the rally is either paused and consolidating here or may have run out of steam. So one question, and we'll just use the price today instead of the price to open the year. Do you think the price of Bitcoin will be higher or lower at the end of 2021? Well, before I start my answer, I, I will say I think a lot of listeners of this podcast are kind of uh, crypto bugs. Uh, I know I had an episode where I had a great conversation with Brandon Quidham. Uh, he's you know, an incredible resource on Bitcoin and crypto in general. So people who have joined this podcast to, to hear uh, great things about crypto, shut your ears. This is my thing. I mean, I, again, I own a small amount of GPDC. I, I got off zero um, as the, the Bitcoiners instructed me to do. I do think it in some respects is an inflation hedge does has it always acted like that who knows here's my thing though at the end of the day like i want to invest in great companies that can produce great cash flow year after year and have a huge runways to reinvest in the business i like to be able to follow a narrative even after all the stuff i've learned about bitcoin i feel very iffy on being able to make any kind of accurate projections on what might happen um, if there were a massive drawdown on Bitcoin, I wouldn't know why. If it went to 100,000, I wouldn't know why. Um, granted, when Brandon was on the show, I, I think he gave some good models uh, on forecasting price. To me, I, I think it's just out of my core competency. And my hero, Warren Buffett, has said this ad nauseum. Um, he, he says, if it's too hard, just pass. And, and Bitcoin, it's too hard for me to understand. I can't do it with my small, feeble mind. Um, if I had to guess what you're making me do... I'm going to go down. Uh, I just think there's a lot of investing opportunities out there. Um, and 2021 is going to be a great year for a ton of companies in terms of producing high returns on capital. Um, at the end of the day, Bitcoin doesn't produce cash. In fact, it's a cash alternative. Um, I think in some ways it's, it's a play on what people's preferences and tastes are. It's speculation. Um, I think in 2021, we might start to see a, a return to quality and fundamentals in terms of large institutions saying, hey, I'm seeing these companies reintroduce dividends and actually get more bullish on the economy. To me, that's a much better trade in terms of having high conviction and ability to forecast than Bitcoin is. Not knocking it, um, not knocking the technology. I think blockchain is an incredible innovation. But overall, I think there are better assets out there if you want to control your risk and have ability to forecast the future. So I, I think some of that money goes out of Bitcoin and into stocks. So ultimately, going to go lower on Bitcoin. Well, I, I don't want to have to, to agree with you here. So let, let me play a little bit of a devil's advocate. And I know that the uh, crypto bugs out there can be uh, pretty aggressive in their defense of crypto. So let me get this out front that I, I do hold some, some Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, I did used to hold a lot more, may have liquidated a whole bunch. 
Um, but I, I generally agree with the thesis in the technology and do agree that this approach to a monetary system is very disruptive. Um, and at this point, I think that you can't deny the uh, amount of adoption of Bitcoin, especially you know, whether that's by the general retail public or large funds, uh, GBTC, for example, um, and any other number of funds or you know, micro strategy that's put a ton of um, their, their cash into just Bitcoin. So there is demand out there. Um, I think there's a lot of people on the fence, but there's still room for even more uh, entrance to this market. I don't think we've reached peak frenzy. And it is pretty encouraging that the price has held at this $35,000 level. So I don't think, you know, move above 60,000 is, is out of the question and something that um, if you are bullish Bitcoin, I think you probably believe it's going much, much higher. Um, but you need to still keep finding more and more buyers at those prices, more entrants. Um, so if there isn't that enthusiasm, you know, Bitcoin can, can really lose some steam. Um, but if, if we are playing this bullish scenario and, you know, everything continues to pump the S&P 500 well over 4,000, um, potentially even the, the NASDAQ over 14,000, then I think it's reasonable to assume that Bitcoin will close the year higher. Now, that having been said, I, I do tend to agree with you, Ben, in that there are some significant headwinds facing crypto um, that are really outside the scope of, you know, whether it can be used as a currency or, you know, whether you think one blockchain technology or approach to, uh, you know, one crypto is better than another. And that is really that if this is to achieve the, the main goal and what's driving a lot of these valuations, which is Bitcoin becoming the reserve currency, uh, you need to consider the fact that that would be sort of um, disadvantageous for any sovereign government who traditionally are the ones that issue uh, a monetary system. So if you are the US, China, Russia, anyone else, and your local currency is about to be replaced with Bitcoin, I'm pretty sure you're going to do anything you can to make that Bitcoin uh, either less valuable, collapse the market, uh, or defend your currency in the same way. So one of the issues with Bitcoin's success is that this success begets more potential regulation. You know, we've seen comments from Janet Yellen uh, that are not particularly dovish when it comes to Bitcoin, not indicating that any action will be taken soon. Uh, but it wouldn't take much to basically collapse the entire thesis there. You know, for example, if we did run into that situation where you know, Bitcoin is being adopted somehow uh, for regular transactions, somehow find stability, uh, it, it would be possible that we see countries potentially make it illegal to convert their currency or rather Bitcoin into their currency. Um, not to mention the fact that there's, it's basically unregulated right now, which makes it great to trade. Um, but any number of SEC regulations would make it significantly less attractive to a large part of the customer base. But biggest of all, something that uh, I, I've been looking into a lot recently that stands out as a major, major red flag, at least for, for Bitcoin, but really crypto at large, is Tether. Uh, and this is nothing new. Tether is a stable coin, um, but Tether has been under investigation by the Attorney General's office since 2019, um, basically accused of being a Ponzi scheme. And what Tether is supposed to be uh, is a stable coin that is pegged to the dollar. So every tether has a dollar associated with it. But the issue with that is that in recent months, and especially post the um, uh, major correction back in March, um, the production and minting of tether has basically skyrocketed. Uh, and that's followed along with the price of Bitcoin. 
um, in a, a pretty cursory inspection into you know where the dollars might be stored offshores in the Bahamas or wherever that would be backing the tether, you find that there just isn't enough dollars to possibly uh, peg each and every tether. And then when you look further, you see that the exchanges where most of the crypto is, is traded, so this wouldn't be Coinbase, you know, this would be Binance uh, and a couple of other offshore um, crypto exchanges, the majority of the volume comes through in Tether. Uh, so these sort of um, underground, you could even call them dark pool crypto exchanges are being primarily driven by what looks to be a pretty fraudulent uh, stable coin here. And if that volume were to dry up, um, that would significantly impact uh, a lot of the, the price action and bullishness around Bitcoin. So um, we were expected to see uh, some some update or resolution in that Tether case, but um, it's been delayed by all types of legal proceedings. Uh, and we're supposed to see something on the 15th earlier this week, and that didn't happen. So um, Bitcoin and Tether still have another day to continue minting more and um, certainly making the, the few wills out there who do have access to um, this this spigot uh, more money, but definitely something to uh, be, be cautious about moving forward in, in your crypto portfolio, which I think there is always a place for crypto in your portfolio, but 100% of your net worth in crypto, uh, that, that's uh, probably a little too much risk for me. Yeah, I think you bring up some really good points on the regulatory side, because I mean, this is a reason a lot of people say don't invest in small caps. When Chris Seifel was on the podcast, I think he did a good job of summarizing this. You ultimately want institutional support as a level of resistance on the stocks you buy. If you have a big buyer in the market or prospective big buyers, it really helps support the price uh, you buy and, and hopefully sell at. So Bitcoin, if there are regulatory things that happen, uh, specifically, you know, the Lagarde comments about kind of uh, activities occurring in the context of Bitcoin that are not legal. Uh, you, know, you talk about how popular ESG investing is, right? Environmental and social governance. If Bitcoin it becomes associated with things that are illegal, there's going to be institutions that can't buy it for better or for worse. I'm not making a commentary on the currency or what it is or isn't used for. But it, again, these institutions are bound by what they can and can't do. And if part of your thesis is the pool of buyers is growing by a ton, uh, regulation actually means the opposite, right? The amount of institutions that can own Bitcoin is going down. So I don't think it's a clear pathway for who can buy it. Fair enough. And again, we love you crypto people. Please don't come, come after us for having some, some maybe not super bullish. Uh, I own it. I own GPDC. So we're on the team. same team. Same team. We both got our, our toes dipped in the pool here. Uh, and that pool is, is becoming bigger. All right. You got, you got a few more. Let's, uh, let's keep going here. So one thing that was lighting up my tape and the tape of just about every TikTok and Robinhood investor out there uh, is the explosion of SPACs or special purpose acquisition companies in the markets this year. So 2020 um, has been dubbed the year of the SPAC. We saw 219 blank check companies um, raising $73 billion in proceeds year to date. Um, so that is a 462% year-over-year jump in proceeds for SPACs and a several-fold increase in the number of SPACs uh, that have come to market. So basically what a SPAC is, uh, is a vehicle um, to raise money and then eventually a SPAC will acquire uh, an existing private company and bring them public. So it's sort of an alternative to the traditional IPO, but... 
the SPAC itself trades long before a company has been identified and raises funds in anticipation of making that acquisition. So this is definitely something that has entered everyone's radar and has brought to market a couple of notable names like DraftKings, uh, Virgin Galactic, as well as Nikola, and plenty more to come. Um, Shema, the dude Shamath has you know several SPACs on his own. There's even now a SPAC ETF, ticker SPAK. So seeing as this has been quite, quite the uh, feature of 2020 the question is ben do you think there will be more or less SPACs? oh i was when you when you sent this question to me i was excited to talk about it so definitely more i think when there are new ways of raising capital that promise uh certain participants in the market to get rich those ways of raising capital will expand unfortunately the the getting rich part isn't for the retail investors or for the end buyers of the SPAC. It's for the person who raises the SPAC and eventually uh, sells it to people like you and me. So, I mean, SPACs in many ways have advantages to going public. Uh, the kind of regulatory burden is less. You find someone who has deep pockets and is able to raise money. You sell your business. The business owner walks away with cash. Uh, the person running the SPAC is able to sell it to investors. So, I mean, there are definitely incentives to do more of these things. There's a reason Shamath is doing every letter of the alphabet, and it's not to be the Warren Buffett of SPACs. Um, it's it's going to be fascinating to see what his returns are like um, compared to a Buffett. I can tell you it's probably not going to be 20% IRR um, over half a century. And by the way, everyone listening, like that's what Buffett's done. That's why he's the greatest investor of all time. So you may ask, like Ben, why is that the case? Like Why could they not return 20%? What's well, because they're being bought at insane valuations. And ultimately, like the price you pay for a business is pretty much you know goes down to what the free cash flow yield is year after year. It's what you can it's the cash you can get out of the business. We can talk all day about the future and valuation multiples, but if you yeah, word to the listeners, and I try to do this for myself, like if you wouldn't buy the business privately for the price you're paying in the stock market, you should think twice about whether you want to own the stock or not. So to me, like the, the people who raise these SPACs, like they're clearly not doing that. You're seeing businesses that make $30 million in revenue uh, come out at a $2 billion valuation. It, it's nuts. I think a lot of the, the market participants here or the capital allocators, like they're not thinking at all um, about what like a, an acceptable valuation is. And just like you would invest like a private equity manager or portfolio manager, when you invest with the SPAC, like you trust that the person who bought the business did it at the right multiple. Um, I'm not going to mention names, but I can tell you like a lot of these SPACs trade 50x to 100x sales. Um, they don't have competitive moats. Um, looking at you, all the electrical, electric vehicle SPACs, like come on, yeah, Tesla's the best in the market. Um, a lot of the, the IP and technology, it's nothing revolutionary or breakthrough. So that's just one example, but I could name a ton of others. So there's going to be more SPACs, but like word to the wise, I mean, you might want to, you might want to read through the prospectus, look at the presentations, think about whether it's a business you personally would pay that amount of money for. Um, I don't think it's a sustainable trend, but it is the flavor of the year, flavor of the week, month, who knows, but uh, we're going we're gonna to see more. And I think innocent until a lot of investors get hurt. Uh, so it may take a couple of years for the damage uh, to completely settle, but 2021 will be the year of the SPAC. So I, I like that. I like that. And the, the SPAC, you know, there, there are plenty of issues there, but I think it definitely presents a more attractive uh, opportunity to have access to 
uh, public capital markets for a private company than the traditional uh, IPO, which is pretty inefficient in terms of raising money versus the you know created market cap or you know overall valuation once once something does go public. So if a stock goes crazy after uh, an IPO that generally didn't raise more money for the company, it just made more money for uh, whoever was underwriting it or whoever got in early. So there are a lot of issues with that traditional IPO process. But even though it's better for a company to go public, really the only reason that we are seeing so many specs is just because of the uh, overwhelming demand for them. There's clearly no shortage of uh, speculators out there for specs, and um, I don't have any demographic data to back this up. But you know, if you peruse Twitter, you'll find that, that most of the people hyping up specs are generally going to be younger investors, uh, probably very young investors. Um, who definitely have an appetite and uh, desire for extremely speculative vehicles. So a lot of these specs, um, very early stage ones, are purely just a piece of paper. So the benefit there, you know, you get in early, maybe you get a warrant, but there is no justification whatsoever, to your point, from a fundamental standpoint for the price or valuation. Uh, but, but, it's just going to go up. God, sorry. I, oh, I, have, so, I have a big prediction to make when you're done with this. So it's, it's going to go up or down based on how much it's pumped by you know, whoever on, on Twitter or whatever, and they generally tend to be at a lower price. So it's pretty easy for someone with maybe a $600 check to accumulate. So when and if we do see a significant drawback and a lot of these participants who have been really funding um, the SPAC explosion are no longer there, uh, need to start maybe using, um, you know, whatever expendable funds they have for something else, I think you'll see a lot of that market really dry up. Um, and also, you know, once a number of companies have been brought to market that have really been found to be more half-baked or not really as well-conceived of business looking at you, Nicola, um, it, it'll probably force perhaps a little more scrutiny on what companies are brought to market versus this very frenzied pace of trying to get specs out there and get to market as quick as possible, uh, which appears to be what Shamath is doing. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised, honestly, if in the first quarter of 2021, we have more specs than there were in all of 2020. Um, but I, I do see this really tapering off because I think this is just yet another symptom of the, the frenzy out there um, as people are moving away from blue chips, feeling like, you know, they're not getting enough return on their investment from the typical investment strategy. They turn to very, very speculative instruments like this. So we are in that stage of the market and assuming we can keep the party going for another year, then this will certainly continue. But um, we should see SPACs definitely be one of the casualties, not SPACs in general, but at least the insane number of them and the insane amount of capital flowing into them. Um, if there is to be some type of you know, market event or some type of downturn at any point in the next calendar year. Um, so it's good trade for now, but is this a good trade long term? I, I feel like that is very hard to uh, really trust beyond, you know, the, the duration of a trade, but Ben, I'm, I'm interested. To yes. Hear your, your Everything you here. said supports my prediction, specifically the scrutiny piece. There's going to be way more scrutiny. So I think we're going to see a perfect storm in SPAC. So I think you're right. We could see in the first or second quarter of the year more than we saw all of last year. So huge amount of these things, they're going to be in the public eye. Um, a, a drawdown is inevitable. As you said, these companies are going to start to report and the results are going to be nowhere near as good as was promised. And investors are going to lose their shirt. And with that is going to come a lot of regulatory eyes on them. And I think it's very right for some enterprising politician to lay down the law and say, hey, SEC, like there needs to be um, a lot more oversight 
on uh, bringing us back to market, uh, which will definitely pop the bubble. Uh, regulation always does, as well as other things. So my prediction was going to be that, the, A, there's a huge amount of regulation that gets introduced for SPACs this year, and B, we see a massive drawdown. Maybe something, I, I mean, I don't think the impact will be as large, but I also think, at least in the financial world, it could be remembered as the you know CDO, CLO, uh, massive subprime crisis of 08 or 09. These are like, these are going to be remembered as things you did not want to own and that blew up in people's faces. So again, a, a lot of the end investors are retail, so the, the damage will be fairly muted uh, relative to like banks being super levered and um, having assets that decline to value. But this is going to be a huge story. I think it could blow up in 2021. But until then, enjoy the party while it lasts. I'm sure there's a, a, a DJ at the SPAC party who's, who's got some, some lit mixes that he's, he's ripping there. But to take us home here, the last question, we'll, we'll end on a, a, a very low note, not a high note, but uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll have some um, arousing commentary. But will there be more bankruptcies in 2021? And before you answer this, just a, a few notes here. So more large US companies filed for bankruptcy in 2020 than in any year since the global financial crisis after the pandemic tipped swaths of the economy into distress. So energy, retail, and consumer services companies led with a total of 244 filings, the worst since 2009 when 293 companies sought protection. Um, with that large number, I, I know where you're going with this, Ben. Is there a chance that uh, a lot of the ones that are still teetering on the edge in energy, retail, consumer, and travel, you know, could potentially fall into the abyss? You know, what are your thoughts there, Ben? Yeah, I mean, predictably, I'm going lower. I, I think this is going to be a really good year for credit. Um, and Part of that is that rates are super low and potentially going lower. We have a very accommodative Fed, very accommodative uh, monetary and fiscal policy. I mean, the, and, and comp that to last year, which was pretty much as accommodative as you could get, like the Fed was out there buying junk bonds. But the companies that survived uh, all have lowered CapEx for the most part. Um, all were able to raise capital um, to the point where their, their balance sheet is pretty dead heavy. But again, uh, those maturities are pretty far out at this point. Um, any company that, that probably was in trouble and didn't BK refinanced, uh, AMC being a major exception. And by the way, a AMC actually has been able to go out, uh, do some things to raise liquidity, whether it's, you know, selling theaters to Cinemark, which is thinking about, or having subsidiaries, they raise debt through or, or raising equity. Um, small chance that AMC makes that to the other side. I, I wouldn't bet on it, but like overall, I mean, rates are so low, um, you know, high yielding debt is super attractive to investors right now. I think junk bonds are going to do really well in 2021. So I think it's going to be a good credit environment. Um, far fewer BKs is my prediction here. Which I, I saw you going in that direction quite, quite clearly here. And, you know, I think um, there, there's a good chance it, it is lower. That's a pretty substantial number, uh, 244 filings. However, I'm going to go higher for a number of reasons. And if we look at what sort of kicked off um, this, this spike in uh, BKs. A lot of that would be the shutdown um, around the pandemic as well as the collapsing of crude prices um, back in the April, May timeframe. Um, so retail was hit hard, you know, with malls and a lot of foot traffic being shut down. Um, there's still a number of uh, 
retail companies in a very perilous debt position. Uh, you, you use the term, you know, their, their balance sheet is loaded up. I, I would say they are burdened with a crippling amount of debt that they really have no hope of really getting out of. Um, I guess the, the saving grace is that, you know, everyone is in that position. So, you know, it's hard to point to any particular uh, company or enterprise there that stands out as being particularly at risk. But there's a number of other risk areas, things we've talked about before, but one that stands out for me is commercial real estate and the fact that we still haven't dealt with uh, this this burgeoning real estate crisis in that, you know, with mortgage and forbearance protection basically pushing off mortgage payments, uh, home, or landlords are getting crushed, commercial real estate is getting crushed with everyone working from home. Um, even though you're bullish banks, you know, I'm sure loan loss provisions um, can be accounted away, but still will represent a significant um, risk to, to balance sheets, uh, that still has yet to really be sorted out how real estate is going to sort of emerge from this, this transition, um, at the, which is probably the you know, rosiest way to, to put that. Um, and also how sort of these consumer um, issues in, in terms of consumer credit are going to be sorted out. Now, printing and inflating away the debt is sort of the, the easy solution there. Um, so really this problem could just get, you know, kicked down the road, but what we've done is bought more time for a lot of these companies. And I think retail is still going to continue to struggle, especially ones that are particularly exposed to brick and mortar versus, uh, online consumer retail, um, in travel, you know, has definitely been dealt out, but I don't even know if, uh, Carnival has restarted their cruises yet and basically haven't had any cruises in the last two months after having been shut down for most of the year. Um, so that w without those debt markets in place, if there was any increase whatsoever to, to rates, then there would just be this monsoon of BKs and defaults on these very precarious debt positions. So as long as the, the Ponzi scheme keeps operating, as long as they're continuing to be willing to extend debt, um, they can really keep the situation going. But the, the fact of the matter is fundamentally, there's basically no, no way out of where we are here other than to just keep doing more of it. So um, on, once the crack runs out and we got to stop smoking it, then um, I think that we'll be able to keep this number down. But there's a good chance that, that with these market cycles being very accelerated, um, you know, looking at how quickly things recovered from the down move in March and how quickly they went up. If we do find ourselves in a down leg that could be pretty violent and have pretty catastrophic uh, repercussions. So with well, that risk let, line let me out add there. One more thing before to my story on this before uh, we wrap up this question. So we haven't, I mean, in an hour of this podcast, we haven't really talked about the vaccine, which whether you know, you're bullish or it or not is probably going to be a huge part of 2021. So as it pertains to the credit environment and the amount of bankruptcies we see, like if you're a lender uh, versus a borrower, like it's a lot more attractive to lend to a retailer travel, um, knowing that the vaccine is getting rolled out. And as a borrower, you have a much better story to tell. Um, that's, I think, going to be a big part of the refinancing story. And even if we do see defaults or potential defaults where it's like, oh, you, uh, you didn't pay this, this quarter or you tripped the covenant, like renegotiation, the borrower is going to have way more leverage because they can, they can point to states that are seeing better numbers because of a higher vaccine rollout. I mean, I think a story that's going unnoticed right now is Israel is about 25% vaccinated. Their infections have gone way down. Uh, the vaccine's being proved out in terms of uh, it working. So, I mean, don't fade the vaccine, I guess, is, is the point I want to make. 
Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fading the vaccine, <laughs> at least in the sense that it being out there, I don't think really does anything to alleviate uh, the situation here. And in some of these industries, for example, travel, if a vaccine passport or something similar is required to uh, fly in an airplane, take a cruise, stay at a hotel, um, what you have is sort of reduced your, your customer base there and the amount of demand for your product as soon as you have sort of um, that additional hoop for people to jump through. So considering you're trying to make up for lost time here and yet have another potential bottleneck uh, preventing people from being able to get out and use it, I think a bigger issue with the vaccine, it's not that it's available, but um, assuming that everyone will be getting it and rolling it out will be, you know, this, this uh, process that proceeds and everything reopens, we need to get enough vaccines out to everyone and clearly delivering them has been a challenge so far, at least administering them, let alone uh, some of the reports we're having about some uh, batches, particularly the Moderna vaccine, um, being held back or um, no longer being used for vaccinations because of the number of adverse reactions. Um, there, there's a, a significant number of potential risks there, um, not the least of which being a supply, but you know also the potential downside of what if we find out it's more dangerous uh, not as easy to roll out as we think. We're kind of back to square one there, or we just decide, well, why don't we just reopen anyways? So I, I don't buy that the vaccine is going to make it any easier for a lot of these consumer discretionary type companies and travel companies um, to return and come back in 2021 with a bang. In fact, I think this requirement to have a vaccine is just going to be further headwind, sort of pre preventing them from getting back to previous levels of, of travel and um, a similar level of demand for for their products. So, so there's you're, not, no, you're not loving my national cinemedia trade for 2021. I I do kind of like the AMC trade currently, just because uh, high high potential there for a short squeeze, um, which over three bucks here uh, had a slightly down day, but is is showing the signs of uh, a Wall Street bets uh, driven short squeeze. So. No, there, there's some opportunity there. But yeah, with theaters especially, I have a hard time believing that uh, there's going to be enough quality uh, Marvel Universe and Star Wars sequels out there to you know provide better content than you know Crudes 2 or whatever got people out in 2020. So it's just lacking for a, a real compelling product. And the issue or shortcoming is not, you know, the fact that people are, are scared to go to movie theaters, which that is an issue, but also it's just not a great product and it's it's not a particularly viable one, at least at the scale we have here, uh, for it to grow and really be a, a compelling long in the way that I know that you, you're looking at. Yeah, I, I don't think your, your points don't make sense. That was a lot of negatives, but... I we'll see at the at the beginning of 2022 we can do this same podcast. I, I think you know at the top of the show I was talking about how I wish I had more conviction in pen. I could see theaters being misunderstood now in the same way that casinos were um, at the kind of height of COVID. I, I think there's so much discussion about streaming and the death of movie theaters. I can't help but think that that contrarians are going to be right on this one. That the hand is a bit overplayed. There's really no proof yet to suggest that box office revenues have been permanently impaired. Let's wait until theaters are 100% open and let's wait until the vaccine has had a chance to prove itself. That's all I'm saying. I, I hear your points, but I think time will tell who's right here. 
And my, my final thought here, and something I mentioned to you offline as far as movie theaters go, box office receipts were down in 2019 from 2018, and this is without a pandemic, anything else. So there was already a, a decline in the overall TAM there for movie theaters before all of this happened. So I think it is a, a bit naive to think that, you know, we'll just all of a sudden hit all-time highs in terms of box office receipts once there's, you know, no longer Doesn't any need to, though. concerns. That's, that's um, the trade. If he can get back to half or three quarters, the free cash flow yield on, on some of the names I've talked about are going to be just too cheap to pass. I mean... National Cine Media, by my estimates, if we go back to three quarters of revenue relative to 2019, you're gonna, it's going to make its whole market cap back in cash in three years. So to me, it's less a play on, on uh, you know, return to the way things were versus the, the stock price is so, so punitive, so draconian on, on what the business fundamentals are expected to be. Uh, to me, it's just too cheap. And we'll see. I, I, I think the math is going to bear me out on this one, and I look forward to taking a victory lap at the end of this year. I know you love yourself some, some value there, but uh, I, I'm not seeing any, any growth to, to really you know, get me excited about the upside there. But um, that, that is a compelling case there for you know, at least a small position. Uh, I guess the, looking on the bright side probably can't go down much more. But the type of the BK thought, what I hope to highlight with the decrease in box office numbers is that there's a number of bad and struggling businesses that were bad and struggling before uh, the, the pandemic and have been able to sort of skate by with all of the, the free capital out there and, um, you know, ability to just continue issuing bonds as, as much as they need to. You know, there, there is just a number of bad companies that really need to die to create uh, a, a properly functioning economy through creative destruction, have a better, more well-run company take their place and do it even better. So I don't know that the cinema is dead in, in the conventional sense, but I think it could be done a lot better or done more disruptively, to use a, a word that I actually kind of personally hate, um, than it is currently. So you know, there Top are Gun several... <laughs> Watch out for Top Gun too. I, I just watched Jerry Maguire last night. People love a Tom Cruise movie. Uh, if, if Top Gun 2 doesn't do well then I'm going to start to reconsider my movie thesis. I'll, I'll say that. As long as it's got Tom Cruise sprinting, I'll, I will see any movie. He's where, got the where great run. Be. He's got the Tom Brady run. But uh, I don't think I've ever seen Tom Brady actually run. Um, with, with all that having been said, you know, I do have a lot of optimism about 2021. And I think there will be many great trades to be had, maybe not the ones we think or expect and that's why we'll be out here bringing this podcast, letting you know, you know, what's lighting up our tape. But I do think that we will see a completely different flavor of whatever this is coming coming ahead. So, listeners, be be nimble out there and be be ready to change your thesis once uh, Rice shows you something that may or may not be in line with what you expect. Can I can I give the listeners an update on the the things we always update them on? I will allow it. Okay, here we go. Uh, these numbers are spectacular. I mean, the market is at an all-time high. So with that said, since May 1st, 2020, we have three bets. I'm going to overview them quickly. So first one, uh, Triple Q, as the NASDAQ 100 versus Berkshire Hathaway, BRKB. Uh, the, the Oracle's not done. Uh, up 28% since uh, 5-1. Really good. Uh, however, <laughs> Triple Q, even better. You are up 52%. That is the most you've ever been up. Since we started doing this podcast, I officially have four months before 100 bucks is due at your door. Uh, but I mean, 
52% uh, in less than whatever we're talking about, nine months, eight months, it's just, it's, it's spectacular. So congratulations to you, sir. Tech is, is just dunked on value. We got, we got another one where you just picked an incredible growth stock, uh, CrowdStrike versus MGM. Since uh, August 10th, when we made the bet, CrowdStrike is up 133%. I am very happy to have it in my personal account. Uh, just a champion performer, and I actually think it's even going to get better this year. So love CrowdStrike. Love me some MGM, too. Only up 43%. It's pretty amazing saying only, but you are up on that one as well. Last one. This is the one I'm excited to talk to about. This is the one that I, I've been waiting for. So Crocs versus Skechers. Crocs is up 87% since I recommended it on the show on August 17th. Uh, Skechers, not bad, up 23%. But for anyone who um, did not see the most recent stock talking post, it was premium, so I recommend joining uh, premium. Uh, 15 bucks a month, you get your first month free. Check it out, listeners. But Crocs... Uh, came out um, at a recent investor conference and they revised uh, estimates for the year ahead. They also revised their fourth quarter estimates. So for the fourth quarter, the estimate was you know somewhere 20 to 30% growth uh, relative to 2019 Q4. They're raising it to 50% plus. I mean, 55% actually is the exact number, which is amazing. That is like a tech company, but they are shoe wear, uh, casual footwear, uh, the good press continues. Post Malone's doing another collab with them. Post Malone just donated 10,000 Crocs to healthcare workers. Thank you, Post Malone. Thank you, Crocs. But for 2021, they're projecting 20 to 25% growth. Again, this is like a tech company that sells shoes. Uh, I still think it's undervalued. I think this could run all the way to triple digits. Really proud to own the stock. They're doing great things with healthcare workers. Uh, kudos, Crocs. One of my best trades of 2020 and 2021, I think, too. I will give you credit in the battle of the beloved shoe brands. That is quite quite the pick there. And I thought that uh, all shoes or, or rising tide lifts all shoe boats uh, has, has been proven false. It shows that uh, Crocs is, is the king of, of beloved shoes. So well done there, sir. Very beloved uh, in my heart and my portfolio. So that's a good one. Um, yeah, we'll keep updating the listeners, but this has been a fantastic show, sir. I, I enjoyed discussing the year that was with you and the year to be. I think we're going to have even more fun uh, talking stock. Till then, happy trading, my man. Happy trading. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of Stock Talking and read a blog with my latest trade recommendations, market commentary, and more, visit postcoronastocks.com.